Are you looking for your next podcast binge to lose yourself in? Let me introduce you to a story that begins with sweet romance but quickly turns into betrayal and the far-reaching consequences of one man's deceit. It's an account told by the women whose lives were forever changed by it. You probably think The Stories About You is a podcast hosted by Brittany Art. And it's not just another podcast. It's an exploration of self-discovery, growth, resilience, and healing. And it's all told in a unique format. And this is why I'm so excited about this one. This is Brittany's story, but she doesn't just host it like a podcast in the traditional sense. Through immersive soundscapes and the voices of the women affected by these events, this podcast creates such a unique experience experience that's going to make your headphones glow in the dark. I can't wait to get started and I hope you'll join me. Listen and follow. You'll probably think the stories about you wherever you listen to podcasts. What we think as opposing forces are actually often very complementary forces. So we can feel the conflict, but by thinking about it in new ways, we can actually find opportunities to grow wisdom, strength, skills. That was our very own Yael Schoenbrunn on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, co-author of Act Daily Journal and an upcoming book on Act for Burnout. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from coastal New England, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty, The Big Book of Act Metaphors, and the upcoming Imposter No More. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We're proud to be sponsored by Praxis, the premier provider of continuing education training for mental health professionals. Right now, Praxis is offering both virtual and in-person trainings. And for the virtual trainings, they have both live and on-demand courses. Praxis is our go-to for evidence-based CE trainings, and they're especially known for their ACT trainings. Some of the best expert peer-reviewed ACT trainers offer courses with Praxis. Check out their current offerings at praxiscet.com, or you can link to them through our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you can get a discount on live training events if you use the code OFFTHECLOCK. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, listeners. This is going to be the best episode ever, and there's a very special reason why, which is that all three of us co-hosts are here today to celebrate Yael's brand new book, which is an amazing book. It's called Work, Parent, Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage Overwhelm, and Grow Connection When Everything Feels Like Too Much. And we're here today to talk to Yael about her work and also, I think, As a podcast, just to celebrate this major accomplishment, Yael has worked hard on this content, honing it over the years. And I think everybody who is a working parent is going to benefit from all of the work, blood, sweat, and tears that Yael put into this book. So I feel like your bio is maybe not even necessary, Yael, for people who listen to the podcast. They know who you are, but I'm going to read it anyway. Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn is a clinical psychologist specializing in treating relationships. 
oh, she's a co-host for the Psychologists Off the Clock podcast. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> and an assistant professor at Brown University and a parent of three. And it's really where all of those different roles sort of come together that Yael has the lived experience of working parenthood and we all get to benefit from that. Welcome to the podcast, Yael. <laughs> what an honor to be here. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> I should hope so. <laughs> I love it. Well, I really think it's, you know, all three of us are working parents. And so this is, you know, we're living it right now, today, talking about when kids are coming home. I have a sick kid home. You know, this is our life. And Yael, I know for you that this book, there is so much research and information, but it's also your lived experience that is the basis of this book. Um, can you just tell a little bit about your own journey to writing this book and how you got here to this topic and to this particular book? Well, I will just start off by saying it was a very long journey. And for any of you out there who are aspiring writers, I think I'm a good story to motivate you to keep trying because it took me a long time to get to the point of having a physical book in my hand a lot longer than I would have guessed. And what was so funny is as I was thinking about this interview, I went back to the first time that I came on the podcast, episode 24, where Diana had me on. And it was shortly after I had written this New York Times piece. Um, actually, no, it was a few years after I'd written the New York Times piece, but she had invited me to talk about my research. And I said, actually, could I come on and talk about this new project that I'm working on? Because I had just started thinking about writing a book and I was in the middle of starting to do interviews with working parents. And it's very funny to, this was now about four and a half years ago, because I, I know that because my youngest was six months old and he's now five, um, which is pretty crazy. But as I was listening back, a lot of the ideas are very similar, but they've also evolved. And that's one of the big gifts of working parenthood is that each role gets to inform the other. So as I've gotten more into podcasting and as my clinical practice has evolved, as my parenting has evolved, so has the book and it's become really enriched. And so I talked about this idea way back when, and this was a really formative moment for me where I had thought about working parenthood and anticipated that I could do it. And when I became a working parent, it was a lot harder than I had anticipated in this pretty uh, unhappy way where I would kind of be crying every day on my commute down to Brown University, just feel terrible being apart from my kid. And then when I was with my kid, feel so terrible that I was getting lapped by all of my academic colleagues. And so I started reading everything that I could get my hands on in the popular literature about working parenthood. And it was all pretty disheartening, to be honest. Like it was all about how the systems don't work and that until we get, you know, more equal partnerships and better work policies and better social policies that nothing much can change. But here I am a clinical psychologist. So I, I sort of started thinking maybe there's something that can be done. And I started reading into the academic literature and I found this really cool concept called work family enrichment, which this book really centers on. And it's the idea that our different roles can enrich each other and that part of how they enrich each other is it actually comes out of the conflict from the tension. And this is a very Taoist concept, right? You have yin and yang and they kind of press on each other. So what we think as opposing forces are actually often very complementary forces. So we can feel the conflict, but by thinking about it in new ways, we can actually find opportunities to grow, wisdom, strength, skills, creativity. And I started diving deep into that literature and then started doing interviews with people about this idea of like, can even in the face of conflict, there be enrichment? And it just started me down this path that landed in this book. I love that so much. And I will say, um, you achieved that perfectly. You know, if I had to share what my takeaway from this book was, is it, it truly, like, I felt like I could exhale for the first time in 10 years as a working parent that um, instead of feeling like juggling both of these roles was a complete impossibility, I genuinely, it shifted my perspective so that I really did realize like, oh, these roles can actually complement each other when we just make some small tweaks. And the other thing I loved is that like, the tweaks to be made that you recommend in the book, and you talk about how this is more of an inside-out approach rather than an outside-in approach, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about that, 
But none of the suggestions you make are things that required me to spend more time doing. They were tweaks that I could make within the life I'm already living. Whereas a lot of other books I've read, it was like, I don't have time to, if I'm even making the time to read the book, it's a small miracle. But now if I have to like do a bunch of extra, it's just not realistic. And um, that's not required when, when it comes to the things that you suggest. That's my hope is that people don't feel like it's, you know, me asking you to do a whole bunch more things. There are different practices to try, but ultimately what I hope people get out of this is a mindset shift, a shift from a work-family conflict mindset to a work-family enrichment mindset. I can give you an example, which is an idea I got from you, Yael, because, you know, we've actually read each other's drafts of our writing along the way. We're we're like writing buddies in addition to co-hosts, the three of us. And you've also talked, I think you might have talked about this on the podcast before, but I'm not sure. But it's an idea of yours that's in the book that I think really has impacted me as a working parent. And it's related to that conflict piece, which is sometimes I find it really aversive when I have to switch from one to the other, from one role to the other. So like, you've been having this great weekend with your kids, and then you have some work you have to get done Sunday night to start the week. And it's just like, oh, you really don't want to do it. And also for me, on the days I have to do the school pickup, I'm usually really immersed in work. And then it's like, you know, it's 2.45 and I have to get ready to go. And I'm so into work, I just don't want to stop the flow. And I find that so aversive that I think my instinct is to kind of be like, oh, you know, this is terrible. But since reading your work, I'm like, actually, that's usually a point in the day when it's not bad for me to make a switch, right? To like take a little break and it actually kind of forces me to. Otherwise... I would plow through and work for 12 hours without looking up. (laughs) So it actually looking at it as, okay, this is maybe good. It's time for me to switch gears. It's actually just really helped me make peace with something that used to be a bit of a struggle for me. Yeah, that's such a great example of a mindset shift. And the social science on this is so cool. Like interrupting tasks actually increases our joy. There's this really interesting research on pleasant Uh, like watching TV shows that have commercials actually increases our joy more than if we have no commercial breaks or getting a massage. If it's interrupted, we sustain enjoyment of it longer. So having that perspective that those interruptions can actually, actually serve your enjoyment is really helpful. The other research that I really love in this area is creativity, that when we're interrupted from a task that we sometimes get stuck on and we get pulled away and our attention is now focused on a different task entirely, that our brains actually do some creative thinking in our unconscious mind. This is our default mode network getting activated. So there's actually benefit to your work creativity when you're forced to step away. So in all these different ways, we can activate that mindset shift and really appreciate those interruptions and also learn to practice doing those pivots, those task, which is high money. <laughs> well, speaking of working parenthood, my daughter just came home and poked her head in and wanted to say hello to everybody. <laughs> That's the second usually has made an appearance things. on the video. I right. so edit those things out, but maybe for our, our, uh, our episode on role conflicts and working parenthood, we'll just go ahead and leave that right in. <laughs> totally. And I am going to tell Scarlett though, that I'm recording, I'm recording a podcast episode. So you got to be real quiet. Okay. Thanks, honey. Okay, sorry. Go on, Yell. Um, is this sparking your creativity? Yes. <laughs> My subconscious is getting all activated. I'm incubating like crazy. <laughs> no, but I think that's true for me. Like, I can get really in the weeds with work, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's like I have to go do the school pickup, and it just gets me out of the weeds a little bit. I could see that. It just shifts your perspective on things, and sometimes that is when you get an idea or something like that. Yeah. I mean, just zooming out and getting perspective from your kid can be helpful. Um, but yeah, just taking a break too when you're really stuck on a problem. In in the book, I'll share with listeners, in the book I have this story of this neuroscientist who used to work like these crazy long days, like you know, 12 to 18 hour days until she had figured out a solution to a hard pressed problem that she was having in the laboratory. And then she had a kid and she had to switch it up. And she told me that now she finds that when she's really stuck on a problem but has to go home and she's enjoying herself, you know, rolling around on the floor with her kiddo, she sometimes has this like aha moment. It's sort of like the eureka moment. And 
you know, what we know about those eureka moments is that they come when we're not thinking about the thing that was troubling us. It's sort of like when you have a conflict with your partner and you only think of the perfect response when you're in the shower a few hours later. So that yeah. is the gift of having the pressure between roles. It offers this opportunity for creativity that we otherwise couldn't access. You give an example in the book of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and you quote her as saying, it's the pause that refreshes. Isn't that the greatest quote? I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. And I think, you know, this is kind of an, an example of that, right? She talked about how she would do all of these worky things and then it, something about like the role that her daughter played and helping her to be more engaged with her work or vice versa. Yeah. I mean, she she talked about it during how during her legal training, like when she was in law school and she had a pretty intense law school experience, which I think there's no other kind other than an intense law school experience. But in her first year, her husband was one year ahead of her at Harvard Law and he was diagnosed with an aggressive form of testicular cancer. And he stayed enrolled. So she was helping him manage his academic studies. They had a young daughter and she was in law school. And she said that one of the things that she credits her early success to was having a forced pause, as Jill just quoted. Mm -hmm. And it's really this enrichment mindset that we can see the pressure between our roles as being helpful in pausing and gaining perspective, in getting some rest from whatever the demands are that are taking, taking over our lives that would otherwise totally take over our lives. So there are all these sometimes hidden gifts because we're so focused on how uncomfortable it is, which makes sense. But by actively pursuing this more enrichment mindset, we can actually get more of the good stuff that we all want. Yeah. I think the other thing I want to point out in terms of how the book is different and specifically how this enrichment mindset piece is different is it's also not a book about work-life balance. And I feel like those are the buzzwords you hear all the time, like, because that's the thing we all want, I guess, or it's the thing we think we want, that it's this like... Or we think it's a thing that even exists that really probably doesn't exist. And this is kind of like it. Yeah, we're not going to do that work-life balance thing because that's not even really a thing. But let's talk about how each of these roles that are so important to those of us who inhabit both of them can can en enrich each other. Yeah. Why did you not frame it as a work-life balance book? Like, What is it about your book that's different from other books that might be more focused on, like as if there's this perfect balance you could achieve? I think it's really inherent in acceptance and commitment therapy, which we all practice, which we talk so much about on this podcast, that you know, life is really a process. It's not an outcome. And balance seems like an outcome that you're trying to achieve, but that isn't what life is, right? Working parenthood is a journey every day, right? Your kids are constantly going through different developmental milestones and testing you in new and exciting ways. <laughs> How's that for a trip mindset? Um, and, you know, for most of us over the course of our life, our, our jobs take different twists and turns, you know, in whatever trajectory you're on. And so the idea of balance is something static is just seems, you know, unrealistic to me. And so I think it's really about finding in the moment how to help your roles enhance each other and enhance your life. And there are, I will say that there's kind of these three paths that I think about that come from the work family enrichment literature, which is there's this skill transfer effect. So regardless of where your, your kids are at and where you're at in your professional life, there are different skills that we're sort of pressed to develop as parents that we're pressed to develop in our jobs. And so thinking about how skills that you develop in one role can helpfully feed back into the other. So we're all psychologists. So we develop listening skills and the ability to have curiosity. That's super helpful as parents. And as parents, our kids sometimes test us and help us to build wise compassion and, and perspective taking, which really helps us as clinicians. Our jobs may lend themselves more obviously to that, but in all of these interviews that I did with working parents from really diverse professional and family uh, backgrounds, people were able to share all these really cool ways that their roles fed each other with this transfer effect. The second pathway is the buffering effect. So if you're really stressed out because your teenager is coming home super late at night or your toddler isn't hitting their developmental milestones, going to work can help you zoom out and get some perspective and realize that even though those parenting things are really hard, that there's more to life and that that we don't have to sort of get totally hooked on 
the things that are stressing out. We can sort of spread our worry eggs in lots of different baskets and realize that there might be stressful things, but there might also be good things to enjoy and to allow us to kind of uh, help move our emotional well-being dial. And then the final one is the additive effect. So the what research shows, and this is really longstanding research since like the 19th century with uh, this French sociologist called Emile Durkheim who collected data all across Europe and found that the more roles that we have, the better our well-being. And it's because the more roles that we occupy, the more meaning we can make in life. So you might make meaning as a parent by raising your children. You might make meaning at your work by making contributions. You might make meaning as a partner by, you know, being a supportive person. Um, The more connections and roles that we inhabit, the more meaning we can cultivate in our lives. And that ultimately is what makes for a happy, fulfilling life. And so in all these ways, having multiple roles helps the roles to enrich each other and to enrich ourselves, our own lives. I love that so much. I feel like the other thing we have to talk about, and you actually really start the book in this place, is values, right? Like, of course, because of who we are and and what we do. And um, you jump jump into the book with this like pretty gut-wrenching story about having to face what felt like a pretty impossible choice. Is that something that you want to share? Yeah. And then, and then like, I thought like, and then to talk about like how your values guided you and how our values can guide us when we're faced with similar, you know, choices between these, when these roles feel like they're in conflict, how values can be a guide for us. It was, um, a very well-considered choice to include it because it is a pretty personal story. And I did run it by each of my family members before, um, you know, signing off on having it included in the book. And it was, you know, one of these really pivotal life moments. So the situation was that my father um, was very, very sick. He had stage four cancer. And right around the time that he got a, a very tragic diagnosis of it being very terminal and him probably only having a couple more months. My sister had her first baby and they live across the country. And so I made this, I had very young kids. They were ages two through eight, almost nine. And I made a pretty hard decision to go home for a week to be there for my sister um, and for my father and for my mother and my, and my brother. And that was a hard decision in and of itself because my husband has a very full-time job. It was a new job at the time. And so my mother-in-law upended her schedule, came out to be there for a whole week so that to support me and going to be there for my family. And then while I was out in California supporting my family of origin, my father came home on hospice from the hospital. And the day, the morning after he arrived home, he had a really crazy over-the-top seizure and went into a coma. And at that point, he was in hospice. And so when the hospice nurse came, she kind of let us know that, you know, at this point, it would be anywhere between a day to a month. And that was just really a process of waiting for his body to shut down. And that happened the day before I was supposed to return to Boston to relieve my mother-in-law so that my family um, here could resume their normal lives. And it also happened to be the day before my eight-year-old was going to turn nine, and he'd been planning for so long for that birthday. And so it was this really impossible choice of, do I stay and keep vigil over my father, or do I go home to this life that has a lot of demands, people counting on me? And, you know, I it was like gut-wrenching. Like I was, you know, crying, and I didn't know what to do, and I kept Googling, like, you know, how long will somebody live? Because I could justify staying a couple of days, but I couldn't justify staying a whole month. I didn't think. And I would call friends and ask for their advice and talk to my husband and my mother-in-law and my siblings and my mom. And actually, everybody was incredibly supportive. And I was just tied up in knots. I did not know what to do. And so I turned to a practice that we teach our clients, which is clarifying values. And you know, there's lots of different questions that we guided our clients to ask themselves, including, um, you know, if you think forward, 30 years, what would you be proud of having done? What would you be proud of having stood for? In my case, I asked myself what I thought my father would want me to stand for. What what would his values have been? And using those kinds of questions, I actually decided to go back to Boston because for my father, being there for his grandsons and sustaining my work ethic and trusting that he could 
he he was going to be well taken care of by my siblings and my mom in that moment, I really believed would have been the most important choice. Now, the thing is, when I returned home, just a few hours after I got home, he passed away. And so, you know, I think that is a decision that I'll always struggle with. You know, should I have stayed one more day? If I had known, I would have, but I didn't know. The beautiful thing about values is you can still feel good about having done the best that you could given what you know and a lot of self-compassion and knowledge that, you know, we're all imperfectly making choices, sometimes what feels like impossible choices moment to moment. But the closer we can get to showing up in ways that we value, that we care to, how we care to be in this world and the most important roles that we inhabit, you know, that helps us to feel more confident in the choices that we make, even when it feels desperately uncomfortable. Yeah. I so appreciated that you shared that story. I mean, you probably could have given any number of a dozen different examples that are less deep or that are a little bit more, um, I don't know, simple, easier to kind of come to a conclusion. But you chose to come up with an example that like, really, I mean, it's a gut-wrenching, impossible choice. And I just, I'm like really proud of you and I really admire you that, oh, I'm like getting choked up. (laughs) I wasn't expecting to get choked up. But the level of vulnerability that that requires, and it's such a good example. You know, it's another example of of really kind of holding outcomes lightly. We don't control the outcome. We can't know the outcome. So the best thing we can do is to really get in touch with that, like who we want to be and what we want to stand for. And I love that perspective taking of thinking about what your dad would have wanted. And I, I love your dedication. You dedicated the book to your dad and it's very beautiful. Well, and also that it wasn't like something at the end you were like, Oh, I feel so great about it. You know what I mean? There is that part of you that will always kind of, you know, had you known, you probably would have chosen differently had you known how it would turn out. And I think that's often how it is, right? It's like, it's not so simple where we make our best guess and it's like, you know, puppy dogs and rainbows after that. Yeah, life is rarely tied up neatly with a bow. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and so for you to give an example that didn't end being tied up neatly with a bow, I think is a much more powerful way for readers to learn what you're trying to offer in your book. Awesome. Right. Right. And it ties in so perfectly, I think, to working parenthood, because I think we're confronted with those kinds of choices every day. Right. All the time. How do we decide whether to prioritize our kids or our work moment mm-hmm. to moment, day to day, when there are big things going on in one domain or another? These are hard choices, and often there isn't an obvious right answer. And so the best that we can do is be really clear on how we want to engage in a life where we inhabit both of those really important roles. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You know, I this might be a good segue to talk about guilt, because that was one of the questions I had for you. And I know you've done some writing and thinking on the topic of guilt. And just as an example, so I had a little bit of a choice where there was a kid's field trip, but I found out about it a little bit late. You know, I just, (laughs) I don't know if I didn't get the email or if it was announced late, who knows. Um, And I already had clients scheduled that day. And it was going to be a tough time. You know, I I reschedule clients sometimes, but it was going to be hard for me to reschedule that many. And I didn't really have any place else to put people. Um, And I mean, I ended up not going on the field trip. And it's not the end of the world. You know, it's really and truly not. But at the same time, there's a part of me that felt guilty when I had to break the news, right? So what are your thoughts? And guilt is certainly something that probably most working parents can relate to (laughs) from time to time. 
So what are your expert thoughts on <laughs> how do we navigate? Guilt? How do we ditch guilt? That's right in the subtitle <laughs> right. of the book, 12 Science Back Strategies to Ditch Guilt. How do we ditch guilt, Yael? <laughs> Damn it, I'm supposed to have an answer. No, I do have an answer. I don't know that it's an expert answer and there's no recipe for this, but I think, and I'm, I would imagine that you both would agree, that guilt, like any other emotion, offers important information and what functional emotion researchers have discovered is that guilt is tends to be very interpersonal and it's a cue to either anticipated or actual damage that's been done to a relationship. So when we worry that a relationship is going to be hurt or when we actually have hurt a relationship, guilt cues us to that fact so that we can protect and repair. So it's a very relationship enhancing emotion. The problem, as with many emotions, is that it's sort of uh, an old emotion that worked really well when, you know, damaging a relationship meant that you were ousted from the group of individuals with whom you lived. And now you're going to be in a lot of danger um, of being uh, prey to some big animal. These days, not being there for your kid doesn't mean that they're going to be in danger or that you're going to be in danger. And so it's this hangover effect that is is an important cue because I, I, I do think that we shouldn't ignore it, right? There are times that we're paying too much attention to work and not enough to our kids or that we're really consumed with our kids and we haven't done due diligence in our job. And so guilt is an important cue so that we can really reconnect to our values. How do we want to show up in that role given whatever else is going on? But at the same time, it's useful to notice when guilt is coming up a lot, but isn't actually serving you to move towards the kind of person that you want to be, building the kind of life that you want to live. And guilt, I would suggest in many cases in modern parenting life is um, not terribly helpful. And the reason is because, I mean, Debbie, your example is so great. Your daughter was probably fine, right? She might've been disappointed and actually disappointment's a really good emotion to learn how to handle. And she probably still had a good time and she probably learned to connect with other chaperones and maybe even connected more with her friends because she wasn't going to be hanging out with you. And so there's really great opportunities that come from you not being around. And that's that's actually one of the things that I often counsel parents who I see in my therapy room on is that um, it's really important for our kids to learn how to be with other caregivers. And, and that guilt it often comes up in these ways that might prevent that. And actually it's a really important thing for them to have experience with. Can I go on a slight, uh, you know, detour or like a little (laughs) tangent here, just because, you know, we, you hear this term good enough parenting sometimes. And I think it's a, you know, it's a way of parents being a little bit more compassionate toward themselves, but actually the old, the person who originated that idea, Winnicott, which was, you know, back in the day, there was actually more to it, which was, it's not just like, oh, okay, good enough. It's fine. It's actually that children need those disappointments. And part of our job as parents over time is to, you know, set them up with some disappointments. You know, if you're treating a 14 year old, the way you're treating a nine month old, there's a problem there. And so anyway, tangent over, but just to say that actually, that's maybe a way to give yourself a little bit of forgiveness when you mess up or when you're not quite there for your kids in the same way you would ideally want to is that those disappointments are part of the process of them getting a little bit more independent. It also makes me think, I don't think it's a tangent. I think it's totally related. And it also reminds me, um, you talk in the book about the power of subtraction. I'll have a tiny little tangent here that one of the things I thought was the most fun in reading the book is how many of our podcast guests are featured. (laughs) Because one of the coolest, most meaningful things I think we get out of this role as podcasters is how much cool stuff we get to learn from experts in the areas that interest us. And there was so much in your book that came from these incredible guests. And so Lighty Klotz was one of those people. And he talks about the power of subtracting, which if listeners remember, you know, we'll put whichever episode number that was in the in the show notes. But, you know, it's not just about saying no, it's about actually taking some things away. And one of the things I thought about in there is the the current cultural problem we seem to have of like overscheduling our kids. And so I think it relates to what you're saying, Debbie, which is this, like, we feel like we need to be there for every single thing, every single minute, or else we have all this guilt because we tell ourselves we're terrible parents. 
Um, and then this other piece of like, we have to have our kids doing all the things or else they won't get into a good college. And that all means we're terrible parents. And then, you know, everybody's like burning out because there's not enough hours in the day. But I think the piece that we don't often talk about is it's not necessarily the best thing to model that your children are the only most important thing in your life. Like maybe it's okay to model having multiple roles and navigating role conflict. And so, yeah, I don't know. Do you have other thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that is one of the best things that we can teach them is how to have a rich, diverse life, right? That That is super healthy and wonderful. And I think that's actually one of the useful perspective-taking things that we can do as parents is ask ourselves, you know, what are some of the messages that we'd like to send to our kids about what a healthy, full adult life looks like? And I think for a lot of people, it brings clarity on the value of having a lot of different areas of interest and fulfillment and that they want to be modeling that for their kids. But that does mean that sometimes when your kid might need a ride somewhere that you say, no, sorry, I have this other obligation that I need to take care of. The other thing I wanted to add is that this was actually came from an interview that I had with Jess Leahy about the gift of failures, that when you're not there to pick them up, to bring their homework to them or to bring their forgotten jacket or lunch to them at school, one of the gifts that guilt, if you acted on it, would prevent them from having is the ability to creatively problem solve and develop resilience. So some of those ways that guilt kind of causes us to swoop in and make them feel better, swoop in and save them from embarrassment or mistakes Um, and deciding not to act on that guilt, but instead allowing them to do what they need to do to figure it out and you staying in your work role, if, if that's where you're at, is really a powerful opportunity for them to learn and grow. And again, guilt can prevent us from allowing that to happen. And so that's why it's really useful to notice the guilt, reconnect to your values, get curious about sort of, you know, what the opportunity costs are and going whichever way, behaviorally speaking, and from time to time to make a choice to not follow the guilt down its path and not act on it. Yeah, it's the when the wisdom to know the difference, right? Like when, because I could see how, you know, there's a time and a place for that where, oh, my kid really needs my care and attention and they need my help in this situation. And then in this other situation, they need to stand on their own a bit more. And it's kind of that, to me, it's that values and then intentionally acting. Yeah. Well, and to get back to your original point, Debbie, I mean, D.W. Winnicott talks a lot about like this dance of like leaning in and being there and then frustrating your kids' needs. And that it really is sort of like this back and forth and depends a lot on their developmental stage and needs and also what you have going on, but it's not rigid. There is a lot of back and forth movement. And what we talk a lot about in acceptance and commitment therapy is that psychological flexibility, right? That movement between, you know, persisting in a behavior and then desisting, right? Depending on circumstances and values. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe that's a good segue to talk a little bit about grit when you talk about persisting in a behavior, because you talk about both resilience and grit in the book. So I don't know, maybe we can talk about like what the difference is between resilience and grit, but then like how and why they're both important to this working parenthood thing that we're all trying to master. I have another (laughs) child who has just come home. Um, Hold on one second. Third kid interrupting this meeting or keeping a tally. We're just recording our podcast episode. Okay. So you gotta be quiet. All right. Um, Yes. So I talk about grit and resilience in the chapter on Um, practical wisdom. And interestingly, so practical wisdom came from a conversation that I had with Barry Schwartz and the conversation about grit came from a conversation that I had with Angela Duckworth. So here are yet two more examples of, you know, just giants in the field of psychology that I had the great good fortune to speak with and whose ideas are just so powerful to me in general and uh, really powerful and helpful in the world of working parenthood. So practical wisdom is- And who blurbed your book because your book is awesome. Just to put that out there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, that is, yes, that was so nice. Um, So, so practical wisdom is defined as it's sort of this Aristotelian idea of doing the right thing in the, with the right people at the right time in the right way. And 
I mean, if you sort of step back, it just means like making good informed decisions that are based on both your values and on what's going on around you and inside of you. And practical wisdom is something that develops through experience, through lots of roles, and it requires our ability to kind of bounce back. That's resilience. Resilience is bouncing back from a difficult situation. And grit is more about persisting, right? Having the passion and interest to kind of keep going, keep trying, even when things get hard. Um, And so practical wisdom relies on both of those and also emotional intelligence, our ability to kind of read the room and perspective take and be emotionally tuned in. And what I argue is that working parenthood offers us opportunities to build in all of these different ways because we have so many different experiences, right? So many different perspectives to try on, so many opportunities to make mistakes and bounce back. That's resilience. So many opportunities to build a deep interest and passion in something and get really skillful over time. And so if we see working parenthood as being embedded constantly with these opportunities, it again offers this mindset shift on when we hit a tough spot, you know, we rather than saying, oh, this sucks, it shouldn't be so hard, we instead see it as an opportunity to build some of this practical wisdom, some of these building blocks for what it takes to know how to do the right thing at the right time with the right person in the right way. My um, personal story of growth through parenthood is patience, which I think is an undervalued virtue in life because it really comes in handy a lot, but it's something that I think in our fast-paced world is a little difficult to attain. And it wasn't really until I became a parent and, you know, you have to sit there with the crying baby, even though you want to be doing something else, you have to, you know, it takes an hour to get out the door with your toddler and you can't find the shoes and that kind of thing. And I just think um, it really, you know, I had to flex my patience muscles a lot as a parent to the point where now I can see how I have better patience in other areas too. I would have never wanted to have to be patient. I don't like sitting around (laughs) waiting for a baby to fall asleep for an hour or, you know, just waiting around while kids are dilly dallying. But it's like, it's one of those things that can be a growth opportunity. Yeah, totally. Jill, what what area has working parenthood helped you grow in the most? Well, I was just going to say, I think a place that I did not grit and quit (laughs) many times over the past 10 years is with cooking, where I would like really want, I don't like to cook. I don't cook. I just hate it. And mostly I always say, if I had a kitchen that had all of the things that I needed, I would have a fine time cooking. It's like thinking up what I'm going to make, making a list, going to the grocery store, doing the preparation, then, you know, doing the cooking and eating the food, then doing all the cleanup. And I would go through these phases where I would feel like, you know, this is something that I should do. I would feel guilty that I wasn't making my kids healthy food, yada, yada, yada. And then I'd go through it and I would hate every minute. And then my kids would always hate what I made and they would always complain. And then I would just quit. Um, And more recently, I've been able to tie it more to my values around parenting. Um, And maybe it's also partly because I know my kids aren't quite as picky. No, that's not true. My son is still very picky and hates everything I make. But anyway, I've, I've been able to rethink it a little bit more and tie it a little bit more to my values. And I've started cooking again. And it's... Um, I'm not really sure how to, how to describe it, but it's like, like what you were saying, Ellis, I have this, I'm now seeing it more as like a challenge as something I want to get better at that instead of like letting the frustration of complaints derail me, I look at it more as like, Hmm, how can I get creative? If they don't like this, what's something else that I might be able to try out, you know, seeing it more as something that like, like I want to do better at, like I want to learn as I go. Um, and it's, it's actually been kind of fun and maybe it's cause I moved and I have a new kitchen and there's like some novelty to it. I'm not really sure, but I feel like I've changed my mindset a little bit there in terms of like gritting more than <laughs> quitting in the kitchen. <laughs> I love it. Abram, I, in the book, I talk about um, the Food Network TV show Chopped. <laughs> the The show is built on this premise of giving these high, highly talented chefs these like totally bizarre ingredients. And it's so easy to get hooked on this doesn't go with that. But when we get more flexible and connect to our values, 
then we are able to work with these bizarre ingredients. And I think it's the same thing that you guys are both talking about, whether it's patience or, um, you know, that you're having a hard time finding an interest in a particular activity. When we sort of pivot and see the value in doing it for whatever our value is, you know, whether it's being creative, whether it's, um, you know, allowing a process to unfold without hurrying it along. That mindset shift on and, and connecting to the values helps us to endure and, and be more gritty. And when we're more gritty, we get more skillful. And when we're more skillful, we end up enjoying things more. So mm-hmm. it is a process. But when we have that mindset of saying, this is a process that feels important to me and, and that has value for me, it changes how we feel as we experience the process, which makes it much more tolerable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the cooking thing is a good example where when the outcome is the one I want, you know, everybody likes and compliments what I've cooked, which by the way, almost never happens. Um, (laughs) You know, that feels great, but like being able to zoom out and focus on it more as a process of growth means a lot less frustration and a lot more, it's easier to grit. It's It's easier to be, to persevere and to keep going. And the creativity piece I think is has become a bigger part of it for me too. And I'm also determined to break them. I will find something that everybody likes. I will. The rare bird of a meal everyone will eat. Home-cooked meal that everyone will eat. If you find this elusive recipe, please share it with the world. (laughs) Okay, I want to ask, so, you know, now that we know how to ditch guilt after reading Yale's book, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about rest. You have a whole chapter on rest. And of course, I think one of the things that prevents working parents from resting is, well, first of all, just being really busy, but also guilt. But you make a really good argument, again, based on one of an interview with one of our other guests, Alex Pong. Um, but you make a really good argument for why working parents should build in different types of rest into their schedule. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I just want to give a nod. Alex was my first official interview for Psychologist Off the Clock. Oh, I read I his book that. while I was you know, starting to go down the path of my own. And it was like life-changing for me because I knew rest was important, but it was great to have the science to back it up. And he has all these really powerful examples from historical figures who were avid nappers or, you know, were really into their daily walks. And I'm like, yes, I could be like that person. (laughs) But figuring out how to fit that into working parenthood is not for the faint of heart. But I think it is especially important for the busiest among us, right? Because if you think about the heart, right? The heart can only beat 24 hours a day because it rests between beats, right? We can only persist in this life that where we inhabit so many demanding roles if we learn how to rest in strategic ways. And I think social science offers a lot of really cool tips. So for example, and this is actually a definition that comes from Alex's book, which is called Rest, which I highly recommend, where one definition of rest is to use moving from one demanding role to another, right? And when we step away from one of our most demanding roles, so say we're stepping away from parenting and into work, we're actually resting the part of ourselves that gets really fatigued from parenting. When when I share this idea with working parents, they really, most everybody is like, oh yeah, that's so true. Like when I go to work and then I come home to my kids, I often feel recharged and like really excited to see them. Same thing goes like if I've had a really rough day at work and I go home and I get some snuggles with my kids and I read to them, I feel a lot more ready to go back to work than I was feeling, you know, in the middle of the day. And so there's really interesting research that backs this up. And it all hinges on this concept, this construct called psychological detachment. And what psychological detachment is, it's like it means to fully shut off one of our roles. And this is where working parenthood actually really serves us because your kids are really not going to be pleased with you if you're on the Slack channel while you're home with them. They're going to tell you if they're anything like my kids to please put your phone away and listen to their story about what happened at school. And that is actually a great thing. Like putting your phone out of sight and really fully engaging in your kids 
is a way that you can come back to work with a more charged work self battery. And usually technology interferes with our ability to step away from roles. But in this way, the pressure between our roles really forces the issue. And that's something we can take advantage of as opposed to pushing against it. Can I jump in with an example of this? Mm, Because I had two kids. And so both times I went on maternity leave and went back to work, I struggled. I found that really hard. But I remembered having this moment. So it was my second maternity leave. So the one where you have the, you know, the newborn baby and the toddler is a, you know, kind of a doozy. (laughs) And I remember going back to work and, you know, I didn't want to and all that. And then I sat there and I checked my email in peace for the first time. (laughs) I did not have a baby on my lap and I did not have a toddler crawling on my head or yelling at me. And I was like, oh, this is so amazing. And and so (laughs) I fully experienced that detachment in a way that felt actually quite recharging. Yeah. I share a totally similar story. So I remember when I had my third child who was a terrible sleeper and I gave myself the luxury, I thought it was a luxury, of a longer maternity leave than I had taken with either of my first two because I was in a position to be able to do that. But he was such a bad sleeper and I just all day long, every day for four months, obsessed about his sleep and how I could get sleep and how I could get him to sleep. And I remember when I finally went back to work It wasn't like I wasn't exhausted. I was very exhausted, but it felt so good to not think about his sleep. It was amazing. I just remember thinking, ah, this feels so good. It feels so good not to worry about that and have somebody else be worrying about it that I'm paying. (laughs) Even though I really missed him, even though I really was unsure about whether it was the right choice to go back to work at that point. Yeah. You know, it just occurred to me, I know this is really silly, but I swear (laughs) when I'm cooking... I think I'm getting a break from work and my kids. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah, right there. My computer's right there and my kids are right there. But I like put on my AirPods and I'm so bad at it at cooking that I need to really, really concentrate. Like I can't carry on a conversation with you while I'm also trying to follow a recipe. (laughs) So they know they just have to get out of the kitchen and leave me alone. And that just occurred to me that like that might be one of the other reasons that it's become sort of enjoyable is that it feels like I'm getting a rest from these other two demanding roles that I spend the majority of the rest of my time in. Right. Yes, you can reframe this as your break. Yeah, <laughs> You're going to love it. It's totally. going to be your favorite time of day. Right? Yes. Like normally you think of cooking as work you don't want to do, but now I'm thinking of it as a rest, a break from these other two demanding roles. See, mindset shifts mindset all shifts over the place so in Work Parent Thrive. Yeah. And I will say that I, you know, I think it's really helpful to use parenting to get a break from work and work to get a break from parenting. And Jill, as you're saying, it's so important to get a break from all of the demanding roles in whatever way works for you. And I go into some detail about this in the book. The thing that used to drive me crazy, still drives me crazy, is when somebody, a working parent is venting about how hard it is and how, you know, they're just constantly on the hook for all of these responsibilities in the various roles. and they get the feedback from the world at large that they should just, you know, prioritize self-care and go on a vacation and unplug. And I just think that is simply not realistic for many working parents, either for financial reasons or uh, role demand reasons or because the kids are simply too young or have too many significant needs. And so I think it's really important for everybody to figure out various ways that work for them. And the, again, the science here is really strong. Like you can find ways to take micro breaks. You can take a mental vacation if you just do like a two minute meditation, but it really requires you to be very intentional, deliberate, and to develop those practices that work for you. So for me, um, one thing that you guys know very well that I do is I detach from technology on Saturday. So this is sort of inspired by religious practices and I make myself unavailable to um, to anybody outside my family via text or email. And my kids totally make fun of me, but I am committed to my Sabbath nap, my Shabbat nap. And I love it. I look forward to it all week. And it really, like, I love napping, but I don't have time during the week. But on Saturdays, my kids are sent to their room. They are not to disturb me. And I take an hour-long nap, and it is wonderful. And I think everybody's got to figure out what works for them. But the point is to do something regular, make it a habit. um, And, you know, in whatever way your life allows, take regular breaks. 
It's so funny because you, I respect your Saturday Sabbath and I really <laughs> appreciate that you do that. And I always wondered, what's she doing? Is she? <laughs> now yeah, you I know. know you're taking this news because I always wondered what you did. And I guess I never asked you. I probably should have, but I read the book. I'm like, oh, now I learned something new about you. <laughs> I'm a dedicated napper and I was, I used to be so embarrassed about it. And I, I don't nap other times in the week, but I really find so much benefit. And the science on napping is so validating. Like napping is so good for you. It's good for your memory. It's good for your emotional regulation. It's good for your burnout. Unless you have insomnia, right? Okay, sorry. Well, yes. I mean, (laughs) then you're getting into, but it's actually, so I take an hour long nap, but the recommended is between 10 and 20 minutes. And it's to do it habitually. Like a 10 to 20 minute nap daily is really, really good for people's um, well-being and productivity. So yeah, you don't want to nap too much because then it interferes with nighttime sleep. So there is a lot of nuance that you could get into with the benefits of napping. <laughs> I'm just always advising my insomnia because I do CBT for insomnia, like stop sleeping so much during the day. But yeah. that's a different yeah, thing. Yeah. That, that's, that's different, different than what you're talking about. <laughs> what you're talking about sounds delightful to a working it is parent, right? <laughs> So, yeah, I think that example of being told you need to, you know, take a vacation, take time off of work, like that's an example of an outside-in solution. And the book really focuses on these inside-out solutions, like the resources we have inside of us to make working parenthood a much more, you know, pleasant, enriching, meaningful kind of experience. What do you say to people if they say like, but now you're saying it's all on parents when really there are systemic issues, you know, there are issues with capitalism and, you know, work culture, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what, what's your response to that? I think it's an important question. And it's, I think one that psychologists always struggle with, right? We're in many areas, including, for example, and Debbie, I know you're working on a book on burnout and Jill, you're working on one on imposterism. And a lot of the challenges that people face really do have an an enormous systemic component, right? That if our world were more progressive and more fair and more just in various ways, then things wouldn't be so hard. There is obviously truth to that. And there do need to be outside in changes, you know, policy updates and things that happen in the workplace and things that happen in marriages that are more progressive and humane. Um, And at the same time, I think there is a human element to this that can't be eradicated by systemic change, specifically when I'm thinking about working parenthood. I cannot imagine a situation where you wouldn't feel torn between two roles, right? Like it's hard to think about the possibility to even imagine a possibility where you're one person and can do all the things that you would want to do for your family and can do all the things that you would want to do for a, a work life that feels important to you. Or or maybe it doesn't feel meaningful to you, but it feels important to be able to uh, have income that supports your family. And so in this way, it's really a human problem that can't be fixed from the outside. And there are no structures that can fix the desire to participate fully in two demanding roles, each of which wants so much from us. And so for that reason, both because system change takes a really long time and because system change can't undo something that is fundamentally human, the desire to you know, be in two different places at once, to be in conflict over what we should do, that I think really underscores the importance of psychological tools for managing working parenthood more effectively. And I will say that as I was writing the book, it was something I thought a lot, you know, the, the worry that people would suggest that I was pointing to psychological tools to manage something that is not the fault of the individual, but really is a problem that lives at the system level. And so I do want to make the point that I think that system change is necessary and that psychological tools can be quite useful. And, you know, at the end of the day, what I think is the important take-home message from the book is that they complement each other. Like, when we work on systemic change and creating more humane policies and fairer marriages and workplaces that have more flexibility for working parents... That works more powerfully when we as individuals have these kinds of psychological tools that help us to engage more deeply in the parenting role in the way that works best for us and to show up for our work roles in the ways that we find most fulfilling. 
right? If we can do that outside in work and the inside out work, we can really make a powerful move forward. Yeah, it's not either or, it's both and. And exactly. I that's such an interesting point because even if we had the most flexible work schedule and unlimited vacation time and an equal partner at home and maybe even a nanny that we don't have to pay for, right? If everything was working perfectly from the outside, that doesn't erase the conflict. And I hadn't really thought about that aspect of it. I'm still going to want to be in two places at the same time, or there's still often going to be work things and school things, parent things that I want to be doing that you, you still can't do all the things, even if you have that you know equity at a systemic level. Right. And I actually, I had written this piece in the Wall Street Journal with a colleague of mine where I talked about the kibbutz experiment, which, uh, so my father was raised on this kind of a commune, so that's why I know about it. But there was interesting social science exploring this socialist a commune that existed in Israel for a long time where children were raised separately from their parents so that men and women could have equal participation in work life and in parenting life. And so these communes were built to create opportunities for parents to kind of do both without a whole lot of pressure, right? To create a community that really supported parents in in participating in ways that were humane and realistic and highly supported from an infrastructure point of view. And what's so interesting is that the reason that the model was dismantled was actually because moms were really unhappy with the amount of quality time that they were getting from their kids. There, there were other reasons as well, but that was one of the big reasons why the, the children's houses were taken down. And I think it just really speaks to the fact that, you know, no matter how creative and strategic we get about the ways that we organize our systems, this is fundamentally a human problem. And so we need to think about it, not as something to eliminate or eradicate or, you know, solve once and for all, but more, how do we manage it in ways that work best for us? How do we enrich the roles? Yeah. We have come full circle back to work family enrichment. And I think, I don't know about you, Jill, but I had several other questions from the book, things like how to, you know, navigate working parenthood as a couple with your partner or spouse, um, tips for finding more happiness. I mean, there's just so much in this book, you really need to read it. Um, but maybe we could end with just one of your favorite tips, Yael, from the section on how to be a happier working parent. And that can kind of draw this interview to a close. Sure. Um, thank you guys so much, first of all, for championing me and this book all along the way. And this, we just released recently an episode on cultivating adult friendship, and I really couldn't have done this without the two of you. So thank you both so much for um, for having me on your wonderful show, <laughs> for supporting me all <laughs> along the way. It's mutual, and we are so thrilled for you, Yael. So thank excited. You guys. So excited. And now Yell and I live in the same city, so we can actually get together and celebrate. I know. We need right? to. We totally to need to. How have we not done <laughs> Okay, that I'm flying yet? out, ladies. Booking my flight. <gasps> yes, let's do it. This. <laughs> um all right. So the science of happiness is uh, one of the areas that I can get really giddy about because I, there's so much cool stuff in here and so many ways that we can use working parenthood to fuel our happiness. So I'll just share um, one of my favorites, which is comes from self-determination theory, which is a whole theory that's built on this idea that we have three basic human needs in order to feel happy on a, on a given day. And it's to have experiences where we feel a sense of mastery experience where we have a sense of agency and experiences where we have a sense of connectedness, either to another person or a cause that we care about. And one of the ways that I think working parenthood really serves us is that we have so many different ways, so many different roles where we can fulfill experiences in each of these three domains. And so one of the things that I like to think about is if you're having a pocket of time in your life where, for example, your child is dictating your sleep schedule and so you don't have much agency in that, find a time at work where you get to make an independent choice over what order you do your tasks or when you drink your cup of coffee. If you're feeling really disconnected at work because you work in a more isolated way, use your role as a parent to connect in. If you have teenagers and you're feeling really isolated, ask your work colleague out to coffee. 
And so in these ways, you can really think about filling those needs for agency, mastery, and connectedness by using the fact that you occupy lots of different roles. So that's one of my favorite ones. I love that. Well, I want to end by saying, I know you don't like this stuff, Yell. It probably embarrasses you, but the wonderful Adam Grant blurbed your book. And the reason I want to share this on the podcast is because he says, in a moment when we're all drowning in demands, this book is an engaging evidence-based analysis on how we can stay afloat. As a working parent, this is the important part. As a working parent, it will save you more time than it takes to read. And I just loved that. He like anticipated that working parents would be like, I don't have time to read a book. <laughs> but truly, I mean, I think that that what the reader gets from beginning to end is something that will add so much enrichment to the, this work parent conflict that we all struggle with, that it is absolutely worth the time to spend in reading the book. And you're also really funny. Like you're a great yes. writer and you do a great job of disseminating science in a way that's like really accessible and easy to read. But you're also really funny. Like I was laughing out loud at a bunch of just like the cute little things that you had sprinkled was, in there. It's really enjoyable to read. Yes. I was going to say the same thing. It's a fun read and there's great yeah. stories and humorous. It's a fun read. It really is. It really is. Thank you. So guys. go get it. Get your copy get now. <laughs> we'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, where can people find you? <laughs> well, there's this terrific podcast called Psychologist Off the Clock. You can find me there every week. <laughs> hey, Psychologist Off the Clock listeners. I'm going to guess that if you are listening to this episode, that you love to geek out about books in psychology. So if you are a fellow book nerd like Yale and I, and all of the people around you are tired of you talking about books, then you can join us once a month to really take a deep dive into the, the books that we're going to be reading together. So if you want to join us, all you have to do is send an email with the subject heading RSVP to offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we'll send you information for upcoming meetings of the book club. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com. 